0: Hello and welcome to the Rambling Runner Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Chittam, and this is the podcast for all the dedicated amateur runners out there who are working hard to get better while balancing running with the rest of their lives. And I was so excited to bring my friend, Deirdre Fitzpatrick, here on the show. She's someone I met a couple of years ago at the California International Marathon. She is an unbelievable runner and someone who's been working in the communication industry for a long time. She's uh been working in the news stations out in Sacramento and just kicking butt. And she has one of the craziest schedules you'd ever hear. And unlike so many of us who have had crazy work schedules before, hers has lasted for over two decades. And I couldn't wait to talk to her about how she makes it all work as a mother who's, Working these unbelievable hours, and yet at the same time, ultra doing, also doing, there we go, ultra marathons. It is a wild scenario, and I couldn't wait to also talk to her about how she's had to convert her daily practice of uh, basically what she's been doing at work into a high-functioning professional in the home setting which is a whole different thing when you're talking about putting out um, news coverage and the like. So a lot of things I was really curious about with her, and I couldn't wait to talk to her about. Also, as you'll hear, she's on the board at the California International Marathon, and they have some news to talk about there as well. So that's how we finish out the podcast. She is one of the most fun, and energetic, and engaging people that I've ever met, and I can't wait for you to hear more. So here is my episode with Georgia Fitzpatrick <laughs> Hello, Deirdre, and welcome
1: to the show. Hey, Matt, how's it going? Isn't that the worst question ever these days?
0: I know. Gosh darn it! <laughs> I it's hate funny. The we question. just had this exact same conversation offline, <laughs> and I, I did the exact same thing again. I said, yes. Yeah, it's uh, but going great." I have great, this
1: conversation all day long,
0: but it's not going great. It's not no. you know, whatever. Um, you
1: know what's funny though, Matt, is that when you tell people, like if somebody asks you, like somebody at work will ask me, "How's it going?" and every once in a while, I'll give a real answer. And then depending on how well you know them, you can see uh, they really didn't want the real answer.
0: (laughs) It's just a loaded question these days. When you say the real answer, like what, there's so many real answers you could give. Do you, do you just come out with a, you know what, it's going great except for the stupid questions?
1: Um, No, I usually, I usually default to homeschooling is sucking my will to live (laughs) or there are too many people in my house. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's a radical change of life for all of us.
0: And I'll tell you what, you have a series of podcasts that have come out, uh, about the coronavirus and how people are handling it. And and in conjunction with your work, uh, as a newscaster. And it's funny because I was reading, you know, as they've come out, every one of them, I read the titles and I'm like, oh, this could all make like for, for good comedy. I actually want to run these by you later on in the show. I I purposely did not tell you this because I wanted just to be you know, completely spontaneous of like, if this was a satirical podcast, what would this podcast be about with this title?
1: So it's, it's so, that's so funny. So my podcast is called Dying to Ask and and the premise of it has always been, I work in TV news, um, but the premise of the podcast has been, I've always been fascinated behind the scenes of how people pull things off because people who work in TV news, especially reporters, we go into a Ford, everybody drives a Ford Explorer, and we go into a Ford Explorer at the beginning of the day, and we go out on a story, and all day long, when you're gathering the elements of your story, you're really talking about all these other things you'd like to do in life. You know, like, I would love to be a writer, or I've always wanted to do this, but very few people actually go beyond the TV news job to go pull those other things off, because the TV news job is very consuming, you know, and it's very much a lifestyle kind of job. So I've always been fascinated by people who come up with an idea, they follow through, (laughs) at the end of it, they have created something. So that's really what the podcast has always been about. Um, So when this whole thing, this whole virus thing started, I'm like, well, I need like hacks to figure out life. So we just kind of converted on a dime. And I didn't really have access to my studio anymore because a lot of us were working from home. And so like even right now, I've converted my closet into an audio booth. And that's where I'm recording not only with you for your podcast, but also for mine. And the funny thing is, I love it. I've never had better sound because I'm surrounded by all the clothes. Um, And I love the coziness of kind of being here at home and flip flops. It's, it's, It's been like a bright spot in this whole experience.
0: That's awesome. See, I'm in a different location. So I'm in my kid's playroom in the basement. And it's uh, it's not ideal from an audio perspective. And our Wi-Fi is never strong enough. So you're always using the cell service. So I'm literally looking at, I propped up using two bar stools, two high-backed bar stools in front of <laughs> Your me. Your kids have bar stools in their playroom? Well, you know what? They're very advanced for their age. Um, no, just, uh, these, are, these are my bar stools. Um, and I have a blanket draped over them. To like, muffle the sound, and then two huge pillows in front of the blanket. So, I'm looking at this, it almost looks like a um, a holiday in, like, really bad uh, headboard is what I'm looking at. Um, I've got uh, a visual, mm-hmm. yeah, it's not, it's not, it's not the best, uh, but you know, no, but it's <laughs> had worse, but it, but it works.
1: Oh, oh, I've done worse. You know, do you know how we record audio when we're traveling for the Olympics? We have a box. And like a big like a big like equipment box that gets ships all our gear over and they line it with um, we call it like eggshell foam. It looks literally like an like an egg box, but it's made out of foam. And we just kind of line it with that. And then you stick your head in the box and a photographer holds a blanket or a jacket over your head and you use the light from your phone to look at your script. And that, my friend, is how network Olympic coverage is recorded.
0: People watching this from afar must be confused. If you're doing your job, or if your crew is trying to murder you.
1: Well, the good news is that nobody sees it because it typically takes place back in you know, um, you know, whatever newsroom you've set up to work remotely. However, every once in a while, you'll record in that Ford Explorer I mentioned a little while ago, and you'll do the same thing where you put a jacket over your head. In which case, it could look like somebody's trying to strangle you. I agree. I've never thought about it, but you're right. Yeah, that could be a problem. And now, if you're now, if you're really close, you would also be breaking social distancing rules. So lots of problems. It's a hard time we're living in.
0: It's funny because I, I gave I, I've never done uh, a news interview until this quarantine started. So it was my first one ever. So it was funny watching the uh, this guy Joe Keata was doing the interview and then he has his cameraman was next to him it was funny watching them kind of prop the mic up because they basically had it on like what amounted to be like a selfie stick and i know that traditionally like you have something similar to that cuz you don't want your arm to be in the shot but it was like it was really you could tell that he was struggling with it it was almost it was kind of hard for me to focus cuz you could see him kind of like wiggling and trying to really figure oh, it out it's
1: crazy And that's one of the things that in TV newsrooms we had to figure out was, how on earth are we going to interview people if we're not allowed to get close to them? Because the first thing that we do when we do a story with you, first thing I would do if I was coming to your house, to the playroom to shoot an interview with you, is I would shake your hand. I would initiate a handshake and we would chat for a little bit. Nope, not going to do that anymore. Not even going to do a fist bump at this point. And so then we had to figure out how do we gather that audio? Because we never want to show the microphone because it's kind of ugly in the shot, But we can't really put a lavalier mic on you anymore because we might have to touch you. Don't want to touch anybody. So we had to figure out a way to be six feet away. And so our photographers had to get really creative in figuring out, like, what could they possibly construct that would work, that would be durable to hold a microphone for that distance. And so sometimes they'll set it up, and then they'll back off, and they'll have somebody walk up to it. But sometimes they're literally using a six-foot pole, which just seems very dangerous. I mean, I'm a boy mom, so I see nothing but danger with long poles. <laughs> People are like swinging like weapons around and stuff. But yeah, that's that's kind of how we're doing it. And now that actually has become part of the story is you really need that setup shot to be able to show we observed all the proper rules these days and we did social distancing. So we weren't too close to you when we, you know, got the interview. It's it's a strange time to be doing my job.
0: See, the, you I wonder if there's a way to kind of split the difference here and try to make this shot, you know, like almost like, like not addressing it in the coverage, but try to come up with humorous ways of getting the mic in front of people.
1: Uh, how about how about just a mea culpa before we run the story? We promise we did everything right. Now, here's the nicely here's the story that looks good.
0: <laughs> right? No, I'm saying like, <laughs> just put, it like that put, way. put the mic on a fishing pole. Right. And then like you yeah. can just like and you're like, see, yeah. here, here we are. Or like, you know, uh, so on and so forth. And then you see, you've had this podcast, which is you've done a great job with it. I actually was a guest on your podcast a year and a half ago or so. Um, which was, which for you must have been, um, the height of embarrassment. I think the person before me on your podcast was Rachel Hollis. And then it was Matt Chittum. <laughs> and uh, it was a good week. I mean, you know what? <laughs> Both it, runners. I mean, I, I got to be honest with you. You must have been like, we had Rachel Hollis. We've hit the big time. Who do we got next? Oh, no. No, no I can't no. believe you know, so this funny. is our guest significant, Our guest calendar.
1: But what was I so obsessed with with you when you came in is knowing how you had put this podcast together, because I found it so fascinating that you not having any kind of broadcast <laughs> experience had pulled together a an online community with the podcast that so many people related to. And I was a fan before I was a guest or before I had you on as a guest. So I I think what you created, I, I feel like you kind of like a fish in a barrel. You found that like magic thing and you found that community that, that had a niche just waiting to be discovered. So I was fascinated to hear about how you
0: were doing it. And just think think about how I have professionalized this podcast now where I'm talking into two pillows in a 45-year-old blanket. I mean, the
1: sky is the limit for you.
0: <laughs> you know what? For me, it's more like a race to the bottom. But I, I appreciate your optimism, um, your forthrightness in talking about my podcast in that way. See, and so you have this experience where you have this podcast. You have your, your daytime job as well. Your mom... And you're running like crazy. So let's just talk about what a typical day looks like for you. Because people who don't know, people who work in the dunes probably don't quite understand how the hours work. Because they obviously they see you on TV, but pre-TV, post-TV, what, what exactly does that look like? Just so, so, so not talking about the parenting stuff and the podcast of running, but just like what does from a, a work hour perspective look like?
1: Uh, in the before times or in the current times?
0: Ooh, good point. All right, let's do both.
1: Okay. So the before times, as I call them, um, I get up around 2.15, 2.20 in the morning. Um, I anchor a morning news show on the NBC affiliate in Sacramento, KCRA, and I've been the morning anchor there for 20 years.
0: Can, I, or can, we, can we just stop there? I mean, this is going to take forever. I'm going to cut you off there. That is, <laughs> first of all, that's astonishing. Because I know people who work in TV news, and it's like being a head coach in the NHL in terms of like retention and turnover. <laughs> like literally, you could be in like, Nolan
1: Ryan years right now. <laughs> you,
0: you, yeah, you're, you can be the best in the world, and like two weeks later, it's like, oh, they lost a game. You know what? We're moving on. It's twenty years is insane.
1: Yeah, and twenty years, in my particular job working those hours is highly unusual, because most people burn out and just don't want to do it. Um, And for me, I fell into it. Well, first of all, I I turned the job down three times. I was offered the job and I said, no, 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 wanted nothing to do with it. And on the third time, um, one of the vice presidents of our company pulled me into a room and said, I was very young at the time, too. He said, I I heard you've turned this job down a number of times. I said, yes. And he said, why? I said, because I don't want to work those hours. <laughs> you know, I was young. I was single. And um, he said, well, that that's just ridiculous. And I said, well, you don't work those hours. He said, well, no, I don't. But this is a really good job. And, and at the time, you know, this was um, right around the year 2000, I guess, because it's 2020. Look at that fast math, because I'm
0: a homeschool mom. You are such a pro, Deirdre.
1: <laughs> it's all clicking these days. I'm firing on all cylinders. But he said, it was funny. Like in 2000, he said... Um, you don't realize it, but this this idea of mornings, morning news is about to explode because we see everybody's lifestyle changing. And especially on the West Coast, people are getting up earlier. They're getting in those runs early in the morning. They're commuting longer distances. Their lifestyle is changing and we see morning news really exploding. And you really you have the personality for this job. This this would be a great thing for you.
0: Is that because and, just for, is that because specifically on the West Coast because of the East Coast time and just being up earlier?
1: It was definitely more on the West Coast at the time. It had to do with longer commutes. So, like, for example, in Sacramento, we're about 90 miles from San Francisco. But we have a lot of people who live in Sacramento, but they commute to San Francisco in the Bay Area because the salaries are higher. And so you can live more affordably where I live. But you can make a lot more money if you're willing to go work in San Francisco and have much lower housing costs living where I live. But that means that you're also doing a two-hour drive to get there and a two-hour drive to get home. So, you know, there's costs for all of that. So we were starting to see what we call super commuters really happening on the West Coast in L.A., San Francisco, Sacramento. And so for whatever reason at the time, I just said yes. And I agreed to do it. And I thought, oh, I'll do it for like two years. And here I am 20 years later. And the truth is that I love it. And and the other truth is that he was right. Um, and mornings became this defining thing that set up a different kind of lifestyle for a lot of people. So people who watch our news, our news starts at 4 a.m. People who, people who get up at 4 a.m., they're doers. They are working out with us. They are going for their run. They are going to a job early. They are getting a jump on the day before they're dealing with kids at 630 and then heading off to their job. So I just ended up really loving morning news. And so the opportunities come up to work different shifts or to leave and go to bigger places and do other things. And I just never found something that I liked better. And I love where I work. I love the people that I work with. I love this area where I live. I mean, it's a runner's paradise living out here. We have incredible trail running. We have the Western States. We have Lake Tahoe, which is only an hour and 45 minutes east of us. It's just lifestyle-wise, it's an awesome place to be. So that's how I ended up doing it. But that does mean that I get up in the night. So I get up around 2, usually around 2.15 to 20 I get ready for about an hour at home. I do a lot of prep work before I go in. So I read a lot of papers online. I watch a little of the news from the night before. I'm on social media. So when I walk in the door at 3.30 or so, I sit down and I start reading scripts that producers have been working on all night. And I don't have to go back and research something to see if something was correct in a script. I just go into proofreading mode, tightening mode, um, writing mode. And I do that for about 15, 20 minutes. Um, I try to do something with my hair, slap on some makeup, and then we start the news. So that's when it starts. That's so I do a lot. That's early. (laughs) Do a
0: lot before I go. (laughs) That's (laughs) early. I'm an early riser, um, but that's way earlier than me. Um, All right. So, what do you have to do the night before to set you up to succeed at that early time?
1: Everything's ready. So I lay out my so, for example, like work clothes. I lay out two weeks worth of work clothes on a Sunday night.
0: Two weeks worth. Where are you hanging these?
1: In the closet, in the closet, in my audio booth where I'm recording this now.
0: I'm, I'm thinking like it, like each post on like the stairs, going down the stairs, like oh, Tuesday no, as you're walking down the stairs and pulling it off.
1: Not at all. No, just, you know, like in the corner of the closet where like my work dresses are lined up, the ones that are closest to the end are the ones that I grab from to wear. You know, they all look very similar. TV, TV uniforms are very similar as I call them. But I also do the same thing with my workout stuff because my routine is um, I do a little bit of a workout before I go into the station. I have... a pretty nice home gym set up now in the garage. So I go out and I do some strength work. I might stretch for about 15 minutes. I do something just to wake up a little bit and to kind of get my brain going. I need some movement before I go into work. Um, so I do that. But I have a gym bag that's packed. I run right after work and I change at the station before I leave. I usually leave by about lunchtime. I change at the station. My husband works downtown. A lot of times we'll meet up for a lunchtime run. And often that's the time that we actually get to connect during the week, because by the time he gets home at seven o'clock, I'm incapable of putting a sentence together. And I usually head off to bed. So um, I I like to run right after work. So I run around downtown Sacramento. We have a great river here. Um, I try to get that in as like my reset before I then go into the second part of my day when I'm dealing with kids and I coach kids. I wrangle kids, and now I homeschool kids. (laughs) (laughs) That's what the schedule was like before.
0: And when you're in that situation, you have so many pulls on your time. What kind of willpower is needed to get to bed at the time that's necessary for you to make this sustainable?
1: Well, um, the interesting thing about being that sleep deprived is that sheer exhaustion gets you into bed. So when my kids were a little younger, it was a little bit more challenging because they needed a lot more things. Now my kids are, I have an eighth grader and I have a fifth grader. And so in the last couple of years, especially once I've, you know, fed everybody and we've wrangled homework, I kind of had them off. And then dad is like taking the second part of the night now. So I have gotten better in the last couple of years about just getting into bed, reading a book, and then usually falling asleep. And and the reality is, you know, you need you need the rest to feel good and to be able to run the next day and to be able to think the next day and to be able to not say something dumb on TV that's going to end up on YouTube the next day. You know, so I've gotten better about valuing sleep, and certainly, so much research has come out in the last couple of years about um, how sleep is like the super weapon of working. Parents. If you can't figure out how to get, you know, whatever you need, and everybody needs different things um, at different stages in your life, then everything else suffers. So for me to stay healthy and me to stay in the game and me to be able to do what I'm doing, I've just got to be really respectful of my time. So for me, that means I say no a lot more. If there's a late, if there's a late night school meeting that starts at seven o'clock, I'm probably gonna bag out, but I might say, hey, can you put me on FaceTime? I'll listen in. Um I don't do weeknight events anymore. We get asked to MC a lot of things and I just rarely do them anymore because it just doesn't work for me anymore. Back in the day, I could I could stay up all night <laughs> and be just fine the next day. But these days, you know, we do 5 hours of news. It's a lot. And then there's a lot on the the back end of it too. With school commitments, I coach cross country, I coach track. Um you know, so there's just there's just more. So I've gotten I've gotten smarter as I've gotten older. About protecting my time,
0: and your job is one because it's in the public eye that you have to be on. You have to be very focused. So, when it comes to trying to throw running into the mix, how do you how do you fit running in? Not only in terms of like you know you already said like all right, this is the time of day I do it, but you want to make sure that running something that enhances your life and not something that detracts from it or makes you overtired or makes it so you can't perform at your best day in and day out how have you made running kind of the 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 thing in your life that helps you as opposed to something that tires you out and kind of kind of ruins the next day or week
1: such a great question um so two things the first thing is I did all my vanity running I did my Boston qualifiers. I went to Boston. I've done two Ironmen. I've I've done the kind of vanity things that I kind of wanted to check off the list. And then I realized that for me in this stage of my life, this season, running helps me do everything else. And so now I fiercely guard it because without it, I can't do the things that I need to do. And that has become incredibly apparent to me in the last five weeks of this quarantine, the the role that running plays in my life in terms of my mental health, in terms of the stress of the job, in terms of the stress of parenting, in terms of the stress of having older parents, I need running, which means I have to respect running. So when I get to a point where it's not fun or I'm not enjoying it, I stop, like I walk, I do something different, I shake it up a little bit. I I really protect my physical health so i don't get injured i had a a series of really weird accidents about six years ago first one was i broke a bone i broke a random bone in my foot i slipped on i slipped on a floor twisted my ankle and I broke the, I think it's called the cuboid bone, which is like the middle bone in your foot. The only people who ever break that bone are ballerinas when they're on point and then they slip. (laughs) I broke that bone. And so I was in foot cast for a couple of months. So that took me out of running. So that was injury number one, which I recovered from just fine. So I had like a really built-in break from that. Two years later, I had another freak accident and I broke my patella. I split my patella down the middle. Oh, my God. Yeah, I know. (laughs) I split it straight down the middle, and I couldn't even walk. And so I was on crutches with a full-on leg brace for about four or five months. And at that point, I didn't even know if I was ever going to be able to walk with that limp again, let alone be able to run. And I had this physical therapist, I had a great doctor, um, and I got very lucky. I split it down the middle, it's non-displaced. So if it's non-displaced and you stay off of it, in theory, your bone will fuse back together and then you can rehab it back to where you were. And I had this physical therapist, Dan, who was... Um, a physical therapist, but really much more like just a therapist. And he really got in. He really got, he really understood what running represented for me. And at the same time, again, this is about six years ago, my father got very sick with blood cancer. So not only did I not have the running to help to deal with his diagnosis, I also was dealing with kind of my issue as well. And the two of them over the fall of 2014 melded together while I was still doing my job and, you know, having kids and all the rest of it. And, um, over the course of those four or five months, I mean, I really, without having the running for a physical release, I had to, you know, figure out other things that could also release it. So, you know, he would give me little exercises, but he also would just talk to me a lot about how we have to really protect those things that, that protect our mental health. And I learned so much from him over that, that fall of not being able to run. And unfortunately, at the end of that fall, my father had a stroke and passed away and Dan called me while I was away for the funeral, and he said, you know, I think, I think you're ready to go take your first run. So in the morning of my father's funeral, I went out and took my first run, which was kind of funny. So when you haven't run in four or five months, your body doesn't know how to run anymore, which I did not expect. So I can't even imagine what this looked like. But as I ran that morning with this amazing Texas sunrise ahead of me, it was that little release that kind of I had missed so much and so since that experience I have had a single run that I didn't enjoy not a single one because every run is a choice and every run that I go on I feel better at the end than I did at the beginning every single one whether it's 10 minutes or if it's a 10-hour trail run I feel better at the end and I know that I will so I guess that would be how I'd, a very long winded way of answering your question Matt but that's how i protect running and how i find the motivation to go do it is i know how much it gives to me it definitely gives much more to me than i give to it <laughs> but i need it desperately
0: and considering the effectiveness you the effectiveness you have at your job the running and athletic success you've had in various areas you were obviously a competitive person. If I had said to you 15, 20 years ago that you could approach running in a non competitive way and doing it simply, again, not, not, to, not to overgeneralize here, but to do it, you know, to be able to do it in a, our for a holistic release, could you have imagined that at that point?
1: I don't know that I was mentally sophisticated enough to think like that 20 years ago. (laughs) Because 20 years ago was when I was beginning my career covering Olympians. So I was seeing the most elite of athletes in our country, many of whom were my age at the time. I was seeing what they were doing. And that's what was making all of that very motivating to me. I mean, I mean, that's probably the reason why I got so interested in trying to get faster, is when you're surrounded by people who are at that level, you start to think, well, if they can do it, I can do it <laughs> to some level, you know, you could, you could get to do it. And I started seeing how were they, how, what were they eating? How did they train? What kind of bike did they ride? What, what did they do to stretch? You know, so I had this, this like front row seat to see how a lot of the top athletes in the country did their jobs. And I got to go to the Olympic Training Center and see behind the scenes of sports nutritionists and psychologists and physiotherapists and and trainers. And I, I had a chance to really see a lot of that. So that that's really what motivated me to study the sport of running on a personal level and triathlon. And and I got interested in in knowing why is certain forms so important? How do you save time and become more efficient? How do you prevent yourself from hurting so much? So I guess that's, no, I probably wouldn't have thought that I would look at it that way. Um, And even now, you know, like it's funny for me to interview athletes 20 years later. Like one of of my favorite athletes ever who's become a good friend is Kim Conley, the 5,000 meter runner. And her husband and coach Drew just laughs because he knows that I go into certain races, like my, my trail races, I, I do these ultras with my, I have a group of girlfriends that I do ultras with, we, we meet up two or three times a year and we do a 50K together. Mostly, I would say my longest run before one of these is probably 10 miles, but I always know I'll finish. I mean, I'm not going to win it, but that's okay. I'm not expecting to. So, but we go into these things with the intention, intention of the longer the race takes, the more time we get to hang out and the bigger break we get from the kids. And Drew thinks it's hilarious that I can turn off the competitive part and just go and enjoy the experience. He thinks it's so it's so interesting that I can do that. And I think Kim looks at me like, wow, that sounds great. <laughs> you know? And it is because it's, it's running for the pure joy.
0: Oh, I have so many questions about that anecdote. But before we get there, <laughs> as you mentioned, you covered so many people who are at the top of their field, especially in the the sports that we often talk about on this show. And while I love talking about like the aliens of the world, right? Like the, the Michael Jordans, the LeBron James, someone like Jordan Hesse, who was like an elite runner at an extremely young age. However, they're also the same kind of people that you. it's hard to relate to. So when you think back to covering some of the sports that you covered who were you know one of or even a couple people who you felt like were, from an athletic talent standpoint, closer to the norm than maybe people would realize but got to where they were because of other reasons?
1: Mm-hmm. That's a good question. Um, I don't care. Well, I mean, Kim, who I just mentioned, is a great example of that because Kim, Kim is a hard worker hard, hard worker, was a ath- student-athlete at UC Davis, and didn't really know until she had was just graduating that she might have the talent it would take to go even further as an elite athlete. And so she's an interesting one to me because she's um, very much an introvert. She's not somebody who is super out there on social media And she does the work, like to go and watch one of her practices is like such a treat. She's been training since she's obviously been out of college for a while. She doesn't have access to the college facilities. And so as a a 5,000 meter runner, she spends a lot of time in two places in Sacramento. One is on the American River Bike Trail, which is a 32 mile 32 mile parkway in Sacramento. It's amazing. And you will be out there doing your, you know, say you're doing your 10K getting ready for CIM You will see Kim go flying by, like doing whatever pace she's doing. And she's running out there with the people who are just, you know, the weekend warriors. So that's kind of interesting. And then the second place that she's out there training is on a a high school track. We have a track McClatchy High School in Sacramento. And Kim, they have a really nice new track right around the ball field. And Kim will go out there 9 a.m. on a Tuesday morning. She's out there doing her track track repeats. And the people there have no idea that they're looking at a second, hopefully third-time Olympian. They just think she's really fast. (laughs) So I, I love people like that. But on the winter side, you know, one of my favorite athletes ever is a woman, Shannon Barkey, who won silver medal in mogul skiing. And she's from Lake Tahoe. And she is one of the kindest people I've ever met. And we've stayed in touch over the years. And she's just... Just remarkably normal and kind. And, you know, she didn't make the Michaela Schifrin money. And so she has a job now. <laughs> and, her and her husband has a job. She, like, she didn't cash in on it the way some of those athletes are able to do so now. And so, and that's the thing that's interesting about the Olympians, especially, is nine out of 10 of them don't make a dime doing what they do. They delay their lives. A lot of them delay school. They delay the reality of getting a career. A lot of them delay families for the opportunity to represent their country doing something they've done their entire life that we watch from our couches in the living room happen in, say, like two minutes. And like, that's it. But they've like worked an entire lifetime for it. So that's what, that's what motivates me to continue covering them. I mean, I love their stories. I love how hard they work. I love knowing, like, why does somebody care about badminton as much as Howard Chu does. He's a kid from LA who was in the last Olympics in Rio. And, you know, it was because he grew up playing it in the backyard. And then it turned out he was wired for it. And he was the best in the country.
0: (laughs) You know, like I love those stories. So what have you learned about passion? In terms of when it starts to uh, originate in somebody towards an endeavor and how it may grow over time, because you've covered so many people who obviously have to be passionate in order to, pursue, in order to pursue something at the highest level, considering the dearth of rewards for doing so.
1: Yeah. I don't know that you can teach passion. In fact, I'm pretty sure you can't teach it. You can't teach passion and you can't teach curiosity. And curiosity is a big one in my, in my job. You can't make people be curious about what makes other people tick. You either are or you aren't. And I think passion is is that thing, too, because it is true that you see a lot of parents these days who push their kids in student sports and traveling sports who want their kid to be an Olympian. I mean, I see it. My kids are on swim team. And if I have another parent tell me that their kid is the next Michael Phelps, you know <laughs> like, well, actually me, say that not the next Michael, Michael Phelps? Phelps? Oh, absolutely. Everybody thinks that their kid is going to be the next, the oh, next fill-in the My blank, kids don't know? eat
0: their crayons, I'm happy. I mean, I swear to God. <laughs> exactly.
1: <laughs> but but I think that if your kid doesn't want to be that, I don't think they're going to be that because it's too much work. It's too hard. And so they have to have that thing in them that wants to be out there, Um, you know, doing the Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hours thing where it takes you that long to actually get good at something. You have to really want it deeply on some level to get to that point. So I, I suppose there probably are some rare instances where a parent can push a kid to develop what you might think is passion, but is really just a, maybe a natural ability and a lot of really great coaching. But I think at the heart of it, you've really got to have the passion to be willing to sacrifice and to give up everything else. Because for most of those Olympians, I mean, they have given up everything for that moment. They've given up a social life. They've given up any other after-school activity. They've given up you know, the the financial awards that they could have gone if they just left college and gone and gotten a job. Um, they they give up a lot to be able to do it. And that's what's so heartbreaking about this whole 2020 Olympics thing right now is that you have people who, and you know, were gearing up, ready, ready to to peak at the right time to go to their Olympic trials, regardless of their sport, and then hopefully make that Olympic team to go to Tokyo, which was promising to be the best Olympics in a long time. And then... Stop. Hard stop. And when you talk about moving that forward a year, for some people, that's not a big deal. For most people, it's a huge deal. Because if you have been putting off your adult life or your adult earnings life, and you've been thinking, if I can just get through July, I can do it. And then I go on to the next phase. Or I'm a certain age. I've got one year left before realistically, I'm probably not going to be in my prime to be able to do that. It's hard
0: to say nothing of, say, a woman who's trying to have some sort of control over her family planning. Oh, gosh. Say, yeah. OK, we're going to we're going to do this around the Olympic years. And how do you do that? I talked to Stephanie Bruce about that a couple weeks ago. And she's like, yeah, man, I can't. You know, I'm out of that game now. But that, that would be a big thing for me, you know, two Olympics ago. It's a huge
1: thing. Especially for female runners, yeah. And and other athletes, too, especially even on the teams, you know. And then there may be some who took the chance of having, and it is kind of a chance of having a baby at a certain time, um, who maybe this works out even better for if they're able to, you know, financially stay in for another year and they're physically ready to go in another year. It's, you know, there was no, there wasn't a choice in canceling the Olympics. I mean, there really wasn't. We kept looking to the IOC for a decision to be made. The decision, everybody knew what the decision was going to be. Um, but there is the it is heartbreaking to me to know that the people who are likely to go this year and represent Team USA will look very different next year. Um, and that's just a reality, and it's I guess it's just the way it's going to be.
0: So you've seen both sides of the coin. You are a dedicated amateur athlete. You've seen pros as well. What have you taken from your interactions with the pros and these Olympians that you're able to put into your own athletics and or pass on to the people that you're coaching now?
1: Mm, Preparation is probably the number one thing. The athletes that I've met who are the most consistently successful in terms of performance— are so over-prepared. They have rituals. They have schedules. They have a real innate understanding of what they need on an emotional level, a physical level, a mental level. Give me another level, Matt. Um, I think that's all of them. All the levels. I,
0: I, I, Is that all? Academic, of, I mean, that's a lot Academic of
1: levels. level? Um, <laughs> academic level. Yeah, I mean, they're very, they're very, very prepared. And so um, I think, I think that's probably the number one thing. I mean, they they plan to seed and I think that that in life in general is kind of the key. I mean, if it's no different than if you're you're getting your kid ready for a test, well, did you study? No. Okay, well, that's not a good start. <laughs> you know? But these athletes prepare and they're very savvy, especially now, because so much information is available to them online, obviously, and they share a lot of information online. So they know who's not prepared. <laughs> and they know what it takes to be prepared and what a successful person looks like. So I think that's that's one thing, um, is that I just see the the level of attention to detail that a lot of them can, can put in, and especially the student athletes who are uh, balancing not only the rigors of academics at a university and if usually if, they, if they're at a certain level, um, you know, if you're, let's say, like a, a really successful track and field runner, you tend to be at one of those bigger universities, usually, not always. And, you know, they tend to have some pretty high expectations of themselves academically as well. So um, that's probably the number one thing is their their preparation is so key. They don't leave a lot of things to Surprise. And I think that is one that I definitely pass along to my kids, you know, in terms of, um, you know, cross country meets. Do you have you prepared today? Did you eat? Did you fuel? Have you had something to drink? Did you run to the restroom in time? (laughs) Like, what are you doing? What are you thinking about right now? Um, And then they also have that incredible ability, especially now in the last 10 years, the whole mental preparation thing has become so huge because most of them now deal with uh, sports psychologists, which even 10 years ago wasn't as common, but now almost every single sport including curling by the way I learned that at the last winter olympics they deal with sports psychologists and so they really recognize the ability and the power of being able to center your mind and I think about that a lot you know they they, they are very in tune to their breathing they do yoga they do quiet time they do meditation they know how to calm themselves in a very loud stadium when they know that the next Fifteen minutes determines their life and perhaps will present them with opportunities they never could have imagined as when they were a child if they can perform to a certain level um so the middle part of it I think is also very interesting,
0: yeah, I mean, both the things that you brought up are are absolutely the mental part of it, and, you know in different in a different sense for sure, but it's interesting how these are things that are not talent dependent and yet. You see the talented people among us doing that, which makes, you know, someone who maybe isn't at that level talent-wise, who may, you know, rely solely on their talent, you know, a little foolhardy to do so when the people they're competing against or people they're aspiring to be are doing the opposite.
1: You know, um, Kim Conley came out and talked to my cross-country runners, which is one of the perks of covering the Olympics, <laughs> that you can invite some really nice special guests to your the kids that you coach. And she she told the kids that when she finishes a race, even now, she will ask herself three questions when she finishes. And the first question was, how do I feel? So an honest assessment of how do I feel after this race physically? The next question was, what am I proud of in this race? What did I do well? And then the last question is, what could I have done better? And so it's funny that breaking it down so simply to something that she does as an elite athlete and an Olympic runner, and that's something that she had been doing really since high school, um, had such an impact with the kids that I coach who are fifth grade, eighth grade, because they could relate it. They could relate that to anything that they did. So if they were going into a test at school, they could ask themselves those three questions: How did I do? How do I feel? And so it's. I think about that a lot. You know, I've, I've even thought about it during our coronavirus coverage, which you know. These days are eternal. And I have thought each day as I've set up a home studio in my living room, how did I feel about this today? <laughs> what could I have done better? What did I do well? And sometimes when you recognize, especially when you recognize what you did well before what you could do better, it's, it's a positive affirmation that what you did mattered, that the work and the preparation that you put into it had a payoff, even if it didn't go Exactly the way you wanted it to. Even if the result that you got at the end of that workday or the end of that race wasn't exactly where you wanted to go, you know that you gave it your best shot. And and that's what I tell my kids: is if you can tell yourself that you tried your hardest with what you had on that day, fair enough. But if you went into it and you kind of hacked your way through it, knowing you didn't give your best shot at it, then it, it's not that it's not good enough for me. Was that good enough for you? And that's something that I think the Olympians get at a obviously much different level is that they perform not only for a team or a country, they perform for themselves, whether it's an individual sport or a team sport. They are every day performing for themselves, and they, have, they hold themselves accountable to give a certain level of effort. And that is, is the thing that's different about them to other athletes, because for most of them, there is not a paycheck at the end of all of that. It has to be done purely because you inside need to do it a certain kind of way.
0: That's really well said. Thank you for sharing that, Georgia. I really appreciate it. I know you got to go soon. You got Hey, you got to get ready for uh, you know for 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 work tomorrow. We already know you're going <laughs> early to bed, so we got to finish this up. So I'm going to touch oh, on a couple no, of I these. I can talk uh, to you
1: all night. I, you know I love chatting with you. <laughs>
0: Oh, and I, likewise. And let's dive into some of these um, podcast titles. If we were, these were going to be sarcastic titles, what would this podcast actually say? All right, I guess first one is how to survive homeschooling. Okay. So, if this was a sarcastic podcast with that title, what would this podcast actually be about? What, what, what would be what advice would you give? So,
1: sarcastic would be it would be what time is appropriate for day drinking. Can you expel your students? These would be the questions you would answer on that podcast if it was not a legit podcast,
0: right? Homeschool suspension. What does that mean?
1: <laughs> I don't know. I've tried it though. It does. They keep coming back.
0: I love you. I love your first back. guess. I love. I love your 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 first answer. It actually reminds me of the the um COVID quarantine uh, decathlon that I did with Ali Feller. And that was that was one of my events. Was the coffee to wine relay. <laughs> um, you know when 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 do you make that handoff?
1: Dude, it's like it's getting closer and closer, isn't it?
0: Oh yeah. I'm, I'm I'm about to start double fisting at this point.
1: Oh it's been a long time. Long, long time.
0: All right. Here are some other ones. All right. Why sleeping your way through COVID nineteen is a good thing.
1: I loved that headline, by the way. These are the ones that I actually wrote. Um, So this was actually... Well, that could be... If it was sarcastic, that show would be about how to make yourself fall asleep for the next 40 days and then wake up thinner, cuter, and with better hair. But that's not what it was about. Instead, it was with actually dr jenny Plain, who's an ironman triathlete and her whole thing was about how there are a lot of parallels between endurance sports and getting through something like this
0: a lot of tears and
1: a lot of tears how to you know <laughs> go through all the emotions in like two minutes in one transition um and why sleep is so recuperative and so not only for keeping your immunity up, which everybody's obsessed with right now, but also in maintaining your mental health. So she actually had some really good info to pass along.
0: It's funny. I was also thinking about like, you know, forget um, intermittent fasting. You know, I want to talk about like hibernation. Like, no what can kidding. I get on that train? Like bears <laughs> have this figured out.
1: They do. I know. It's really hard when you're working out of your house, though, and the kitchen's right there. It's brutal.
0: All right. Here's here's another one. We'll, we'll finish with this one. Maybe one more if we can fit it in. Living in a coronavirus world with fits.
1: <laughs> so that was so here's what that well, okay. Here's the sarcastic. That episode would have been about. Probably day drinking. Um walking in circles in your kitchen, not knowing what to do. <laughs> And 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 fitting in two mile runs several times a day to keep your sanity. That's what that's really what that title would imply. What it actually was was the the week that the quarantine hit was the week that I was supposed to launch my Olympic podcast. So I had a whole series of really fun episodes already banked to convert. Dying to ask to do. Dying to ask Tokyo twenty twenty. And all of a sudden, they seemed um, rather irrelevant and just a tad tone deaf. So I had to kind of convert on a dime, which is how I ended up in the closet converting into a studio. And I felt like for our audience that it was an opportunity to be of service. So when I don't know what to do in a crisis, I try to figure out how to help. And so I decided that the podcast could be a primer into how to live in this really weird world we were doing. So that was actually an episode that was just me talking um, about what we were going to do. So I came up with 10 episodes to teach people how to um, work at home, which is harder than you think, how to sleep better because none of us were sleeping, how to work out at home with a trainer, how to homeschool your kid with somebody who actually runs a homeschooling network, um, and that kind of thing. So that's really where it all came from.
0: I love it. I know that that episode was centered around you.
1: And they ended up being really, and you know what's funny, Matt? They ended up being really funny shows, probably because I'm I'm 100% Irish, so I default to humor to get through tough things. Um, and they ended up being really fun,
0: interesting shows. I love, I, I love this concept. I love that you had to transition. I had to do the same thing for Road to the Olympic Trials. I had eight guests lined up where I had to, like, I was going to talk to them once every three weeks, you know, we're talking about like you know, Colleen Quigley had signed on. Like, I had some really good guests who were going to be on it full time, um, and I had to pass. I loved this. I loved this headline or not headline, this title of this podcast because for me, even though I knew Fitz referred to you, I loved the idea of it being like <laughs> this ninety-three-year-old like Boston bartender <laughs> who like wasn't even sure what the coronavirus was, but giving 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 advice anyway on the best way to get through it.
1: Exactly. Exactly.
0: <laughs> all right, let's talk about CIM because you're on the board there. It's turned into I mean, amazingly considering just considering all things, CIM is now one of you know, the last couple of years, one of the the ten most looked forward to races in America. I mean, if, if it's not top ten, it's certainly close. And it's, no, it's simply it is top remarkable. 10.
1: Yeah, so I'm on the board of the Sacramento Running Association. Thank you for saying that. We appreciate that. Um, and I've been on the board for a long time. But in addition to being just a, a really great, um, it's known as kind of a flat, fast race. So if you want to qualify for Boston, we're one of the top Boston qualifiers.
0: And Lord knows we've talked about, we've talked about that race so much oh. on this. You know, between, between Boston <laughs> qualifiers no. and OTQs, you know, I feel like a third of my life has been spent talking about people who've run at CIM.
1: We are in Olympic trials qualifying factory and uh, i mean atlanta was like how many more people are you sending us i mean we sent hundreds of people to atlanta which was super exciting i mean it was like a sea of red white and blue at our finish line so yeah so the 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 race is just like it's been an amazing thing to be a part of and so when this whole thing started and all these races started being canceled we met as a board over Zoom, socially distanced, of course, um, and we thought in our heads, we were like, well, it's we're December. In a weird way, we're, we're probably going to be fine. Fall races will be fine. But the truth is, I mean, who knows? Who knows what we're heading into or how things are going to change and, and what will races and aid stations look like post-coronavirus as we kind of navigate this new time? And so we actually made the announcement last week. What we've come up with, we are a nonprofit, so we have a little bit more leeway to do something like this than other races would. We have decided to do the no worry guarantee. So people who sign up for the 2020 CIM, first Sunday in December, if for whatever reason this coronavirus thing comes back, if for whatever reason the race can't be held, we are going to offer people who are signed up for the race a deferral. Through 2023. So with most races, when you sign up, you know, it's you're kind of out of luck if you get injured or you can't run the race or the race has to be canceled for um, what we never used to think something like this, <laughs> but we will now, you know, for whatever reason, um, you know, you, you were kind of out of luck, you know, you bought the ticket and if you couldn't use it, you couldn't use it. So we, we've we been able to offer this. We have figured out that we can do it. And so we put that out to runners last week, which I think, you know, made people feel better. We already had our, our we have capped out registration for years. I mean, we sell out pretty early, but that's at least what we're going to be able to do for CIM. And I know not every race is going to be able to do something like that. But um, but we're able to, and we have Scott Abbott is the uh, director of CIM. He's wonderful. And so he, he and his incredible staff came up with this idea and, and kind of sold the board on it. And fortunately, we're going to be able to do it. And you know, it's going to be interesting to see what does running look like in the fall. We've got all the majors coming up and we've got some great races. And now we have all these Olympians or Olympic hopefuls who won't have been racing this summer. So can you imagine what some of these races could look like?
0: I mean it's it could literally go from one extreme to like one of the most fascinating marathon seasons ever to literally the exact opposite. So I've I at this point I've given up the go I'm trying to figure out what it could be cuz literally you'll have some who be like, "You know what? I'm going to run Boston in September and then I'm going to run Chicago and then I'm going to run CIM." And it's like, "Wait, what?" I know. No one might run anything. Well, it's they really might hard not. to figure out. <laughs>
1: They might not, but they might. And gosh knows, people, people are training. They are training. I see them out here. I mean, i the caliber of athlete that I see out on our parkway right now, training because they don't have anything else to do it's incredible. Some people have really used this time and said, look, I'm just going to continue with my training. I'm going put my head down and I'm just going to be the best I can be. And whatever races are available, I'll jump into those, which is awesome. And then some people are doing the virtual thing. That's giving them motivation. I think people are just trying to figure out like, what can I do and how do I make the most of the running that I'm doing right now? And I think, you know, as a lifelong runner, that's just all you can do, whether you're an elite, or you're somebody, you know, you're a mom just trying to get away from the kids for a couple hours. <laughs> That's what you can do. And I, I, I hope that these fall races go off as we're all hoping that they will. I hope they're safe. I hope we get some good protocols in place to make them as safe as they can be. They'll definitely look different. No doubt about it. But, you know, we can do it.
0: And let me just say, I know that CIM is known for the people who are qualifying for something else, which is... An amazing niche that this race has established, with that said, I you know when I went there two years ago and I was supposed to go back last year, and unfortunately, I just I got injured and i was I thought I might have ankle surgery, so I had to cancel um, I, when I went there in two thousand and eighteen, it was like going to a family reunion. I cannot recommend this race highly <laughs> enough i don 't yeah. care if you have no plans on qualifying for any other races. the rest of your life. It's a race certainly worth doing, if for no other reason than the community aspect and who doesn't need community now. Deirdre, thank you so much for coming on the show. And if people want to learn more about you, your show and or CIM, where could they go?
1: Oh, I love it. Well, if you'd like to check out the show, it's Dying to Ask. You just search Dying to Ask wherever you're listening to podcasts these days. And then an easy way to connect with me is on Instagram. That's my favorite place to be these days. And I have an Instagram page. It's actually not my name. It's run, read, sip, because I love to run. I love to read. And as you might have guessed from my earlier comments about day drinking during homeschooling, I like to sip wine. So (laughs) run, read, sip is where I talk about all three of those things.
0: That's wonderful. Deirdre, thanks again for coming on. Oh, thanks, man. It's great to talk to you. Deirdre, thank you so much for coming on the show. Big ups to PrevineX as well for sponsoring this episode. If you're listening to this, then you are a true fan of the Rambling Runner podcast. And I can't thank you enough. Heads up, tomorrow, their first official episode of the Business and Sports Discourse comes out. Go subscribe now. I can't wait for you to hear that. We're putting in a lot of love into that new podcast, and it's going to be great. Thank you so much for listening, and happy running this has been a production of rambling runner podcast this podcast is produced by david margetti of in post media thank you to meta p for the music his song righteous path featuring rex mayhem and chip Fu, is produced by symphonic bang yeah